Genesis 3 is where we are this morning in the middle part of our series. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our 10, 11-year-olds for their class so they can be a part of it. I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. This is exactly the middle part of our series together in Believe. Um, Just so you know, the the days ahead, we'll be talking about uh, God's restoration for all of creation. We'll be talking about the, the Trinity and then we'll be answering the question, so what? Now, what do we do with, with the information we've been given? That's how we're going to conclude in this series together. Today, we're talking about the second part of a, uh, of a section that we began last week on the redemption that's created for us in Genesis chapter 3 so that we can understand God's grand scheme of, of Scripture. This is an important passage. And in the end, as we go through this story together, my hope is for all of us, as we see, have seen in the, in the first three chapters of Genesis, the story of God's uh, creation and redemption for mankind unfold for us. It answers the big questions of life. Uh, why do I exist? Where did I come from? Where am I going? This was what God laid out for the foundation for Israel to understand their direction and purpose in God calling them out of Egypt. And just as it related to them, it still relates to us to, to today. As we've unfolded this message together, what we looked at in the first part is the, the holiness of God, almighty God, how sacred he is and how sacred the Jews even considered his name, uh, Yahweh, in the way that they would uh, refuse to utter the name of God in fear of, of blaspheming his glorious and holy name. In seeing that holy God, we've looked at how he's created us in his image, meaning different than any other creature he has made. God has created us in such a way that we can relate to him as creature to creator for intimate relationship that is to be enjoyed in him in all of eternity or throughout all of eternity. And then we saw last week as we started in Genesis chapter 3, man's response to that. That man partakes the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And when the Bible talks about the knowledge of good and evil, it means more than just simply understanding right and wrong, but rather declaring to God what is right and what is wrong by making themselves God. The lie that the serpent told to Adam and Eve was that you will become like God's. And so the the sin that that Satan followed in Isaiah 14 in trying to set himself up to the position of God that caused him to be cast from heaven is the same lie that that Adam and Eve laid into or bought into and declaring to God what was right and what was wrong, making themselves to be God. And therefore in that sin was born. We saw that in, in this act of sin, the first act of sin in human history, that sin will, will take you further than you want to go. It will cost you more than you want to pay. And it even appears to be good with the absence of godliness. We looked at the Hebrew word for Satan in Scripture or the serpent in Scripture. It also relates to the same Hebrew word for, for brass and for enchanter, showing us in that text that Satan possessed the, the attitude of a serpent enchanter. Adam and Eve with the appearance of good or shiny, shiny goodness before them, and they bought into the lie. Adam and Eve's response we looked at together was to take fig leaves, sew them together, hide themselves from the presence of God. And what we noted in the passage of Scripture is Adam and Eve, in their actions, brought forth the first man-made religion in this world. The idea of sewing fig leaves, as we study that in the Hebrew, gives the appearance of a soldier putting on uh, battle garments to prepare for battle. So they're not only hiding from God, they're saying to God, God, we can handle this on our own and going out to make war against the sin they brought upon themselves by, by denying God and 
positioning themselves to the place of God. When that didn't work for them, they began to blame others. As God approached them, uh, Adam says, God, it's your fault, and it's the woman's fault. The woman says, it's the serpent's fault, and they're blaming everything in this world that they can around them. But what we recognize in Adam and Eve's position together is that they are helpless. In Genesis chapter 3, that's where we pick up together. In Adam and Eve's rebellion, the response of God is one of mercy and grace. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, remember this is written poetically, this story. But as it unfolds in this passage of Scripture, what we find in chapter 3 and verse 8 says this, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. In verse 9, then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? In verse 13, it goes on further and says, the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now these passages of scripture, God's propositioning these questions to Adam and Eve. But in the position of God, these would be more perceived as rhetorical because uh, by the nature of God, we understand that God is omniscient. So by him asking the question, God already knows the answer. But what he's bringing Adam and Eve to is a state of recognizing their own position before God. When he walks into the garden and says, he's asking the question, man, where are you? It's this rhetorical question, not, not just recognize that Adam and Eve have hidden themselves from God, but to also recognize where they are positionally in relationship to God. In the Garden of Eden, when it began, God experienced this perfect relationship to Adam and Eve, what we call last week as untested creature holiness, because there had been no sin in which Adam and Eve had lived out in their lives. But there was this relationship between creator and creature. And now, having partaken of sin, Adam and Eve have been separated from God, and now they're hiding from the presence of God, and God is bringing this to the attention of Adam and Eve. In verse 13, then asking the question, what is it that you've done? And Eve recognizing the decision that she has made. How that action has placed a wedge between their relationship that's ultimately demonstrated at the very end of Genesis when God removes Adam and Eve from the garden. A distinguishment between God, though creating us for relationship, now having uh, the severance between the relationship for which we were created to enjoy with Creator God. And as God, or as Adam and Eve are the ones that, that run away from God, God in this story is the one that continues to pursue Adam and Eve in spite of their sin. And then in Genesis 3.15, we find this verse positioned between the curse that falls upon mankind and God makes this statement in, in his statement against the serpent. But this is what he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. This is the 
first gospel statement made in in scripture, this plan of redemption, this story that God will carry out as the theme throughout the rest of the Bible. The, The idea of scripture is this, that God is in pursuit of the redemption of mankind through his sacrifice on the cross in Christ. And this story unfolding in scripture begins in Genesis chapter three, as he says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now think about the significance of the statement that's taking place here. When when God makes this declaration of what's to happen to the serpent, the first thing he says to us is that he's going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This is important to just draw our attention to because when, when the scriptures are written, it's written predominantly to patriarchal societies. To talk about a woman's seed did not happen. When they would reference genealogy and, and, and the way that uh, mankind would progress into the future, it would always be by the seed of the man. But here in this verse, it's different. By the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is already declaring to us the idea of the virgin birth. One in which Isaiah in chapter 7 and verse 14 would prophetically continue to say, he said to us, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Within the same context of the scripture, talking about uh, the redemption of mankind through Christ, who would be born of a virgin, it says, and he will bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. No doubt, the idea of being bruised on the hill was represented in, in the cross when Jesus was crucified, but it also talks about the bruising of the head, and when scripture refers often to the crown or to the head, it's this state of, of ruling, the state of headship, and so it says in Isaiah in chapter 9 and verse 6, Prophetically talking about Jesus, for a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. And referencing to Jesus' kingdom, it's, it's stating to us that this world no longer experiences the order for which God had created, but rather it's under chaos. In Romans 8, it tells us all of creation groans, yet there is one, a ruler, the prince of peace, who shall come to restore. Genesis 3 identifies for us prophetic statements about the one who would ultimately come and give his life for us on behalf of our sin. And then in Genesis 3 and verse 21, it says this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. At the end, we'll just point out the significance of why it's identifying both the man and woman in this passage of Scripture. But I'm going to just highlight two of these phrases that he's talking about in this verse. He says, God made garments of skin for Adam 
and, and his wife and clothe them. Now, I want to just remind us for a moment of what happened in Adam and Eve's response in the garden when they sinned against God. They ran from God. They took fig leaves. They placed them together, and they covered their bodies with it. And the Hebrew text says to us, this is a soldier's garment. Adam and Eve are preparing for battle. They've created the first man-made religion as a response to handle sin, which inevitably does not handle sin. We looked at that together. Religion doesn't help. It condemns. We looked at verses of the law, that the law was given to us, Romans 3, Galatians 3, uh, James chapter 2, as a way of condemnation, not a way of salvation. Even relating that to the law today, the officers, when they pull you over, they're not going to pull you over and tell you, great job at obedience to the law today. Rather, when they pull you over, it's to show you where the condemnation is and your breaking of the law. That's why law exists. Law condemns. It doesn't free. Law shows us where we violate. And in the same sense, when Adam and Eve sin against God, they find that their religious practice is not what brings them salvation. And so they begin to blame others. They sow these fig leaves. They prepare for battle. But then in a position contrary to what Adam and Eve's response is, God now gives this statement. He made garments of skin and he clothed them. The reason this is so important to look at in contrast to Adam and Eve's response is because of the way the Hebrew explains the statement for garments. This word for garment in Hebrew is the same word that's used for the priestly garments in which the priests of the Old Testament would wear. The ones that would minister in the temple before the presence of God. And this idea of of clothing them, the only people that God clothed in the Old Testament, apart from this story, is the priests of the Old Testament. And so what, what God is drawing on is this idea of his presence being brought near again because of the sacrifice that he's promising to us in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 by the one who would come from a virgin who would crush the head of the serpent. We were clothed as religious rebels in fig leaves. But God in the story rips off those fig leaves, pursues the presence of Adam and Eve, though they sin, makes the first sacrifice, and clothes them in priestly garments as a way to demonstrate his grace and what he would ultimately do on our behalf. What happens here? is important. It answers for us a a, a solution to the idea of evil, and it answers for us an important question of of even Israel at this moment saying, well, what, what does the Garden of Eden have to do with me? So let me just, the problem of evil for just a moment, let me, let me just talk about this in such a way because when we think, about, we think about the problem of evil in this world, many people look at the evil things that happen in life and wonder how can there, there be a loving God in the midst of evil? And there's all kinds of answers that, that we could give to particulars of evil and what God can do with evil. But let me just give this overriding thought to all of it. In everything that takes place, in all of creation that groans, and all the destruction that exists in sin, the hope that we have beyond that rests in Christ. Because in this story, though sin is clear, God's pursuit of mankind and his redemptive promise outlasts the destruction of sin. And so in all of that, and beyond all of it, there is hope. We think about the curse of sin. 
And even into the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to his followers, he, he tells them, take up your cross and follow me, and, and, and there will be a father against son and mother against daughter. His kingdom will cause dissension, the goodness of who he is, because the darkness of the world will oppose it. And if God were to promise us or to tell us to do such a thing, but yet his redemptive hand isn't strong enough to overcome it all, how good could this God be? But yet when we find throughout Scripture, because of the promise of this hope, what we ultimately find in this is a God whose power transcends beyond the evil and destruction and sin in this world. It's why it says in Psalm 56 that he can keep track of every tear of our eyes. In Matthew 5, when he gives on the Sermon of the Mount in the very beginning, why he said, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's why he can say in triumph he's overcome sin and, and death and the grave in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. In Revelation 21, it's the reason why he tells us he overcomes all pain and suffering. In Romans 8, 28 to 38, it's the reason he says all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That ultimately in this, because of the promise Jesus has given in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that we have victory that transcends the disparity of sin. While this answers the question, the ultimate question of what happens with the destruction of sin in this world, It also answers the question for Israel. It begins to answer the question for them. So what, is this ha- what do we have to do with the Garden of Eden? I mean, you remember uh, as we started this series together and we've reminded us throughout this time period that, that Moses is writing this passage of Scripture. He's writing to a people who, who have come out of the exodus, out of Egypt as slaves. They've lived in slavery. Their identity was in slavery. And God's bringing them into the promised land of Canaan. He's shaping new identity, new purpose, new meaning in them, putting their identity in God and what he ultimately wants to accomplish in this world. And so he begins the story of Genesis with the Garden of Eden. And if you read the beginning of the Bible, history happens very rapidly until you get to Genesis chapter 12. What does the Garden of Eden have to do with Israel? What does this have to do with us who were slaves? Deuteronomy 7, God's response to Israel was to say this in verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you are more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God, what does this have to do with us in the Garden of Eden? And God, God says to them, it's, it's not because you're anything special or great. or It's none of that. It's, you are even the fewest of everyone in this world. But it, through the few, through the weakest, I chose to work my will to bring about the promise of redemption. You're the people through which Christ would come. As the book of Genesis unfolds, that promise continues to share itself. It, it tells us in, in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1, this is repeated in Genesis chapter 15, I think in the best part of the story in verse 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham or Abram in this passage. And again in Genesis chapter 17. 
But in Genesis 12, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house into the land which I will show you, talking about the land of Canaan, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And look what he says. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's identifying for us how his hand continues to work beyond Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Israel says, what does the Garden of Eden have to do with us? God's response is the redemptive hand of promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is continuing to work itself through a particular people group. And this is the promise I gave to Abraham that I'm going to fulfill in you. That through you, one seed would come who would bless all nations. And as a continual reminder of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God went on to establish a sacrificial system for the people of Israel that continued to point back to the promise of redemption that would ultimately come in Jesus. The sacrificial system led, was led by a priest in a temple, and it was a symbol of all that Jesus would fulfill. The temple became God's hands-on classroom of pointing to the redemption that Christ would ultimately bring. And the Jews would gather there for worship. And the priests would offer the sacrifice. The Jews didn't go to the temple because they were worthy. They went because they were unworthy. Sacrifices would take place there. The blood of an animal would be spilled as a demonstration of death. And ultimately a need for someone to stand in our place to pay for our sins. Because the Bible has told us, we looked at this last week, that the wages of sin is death. And the shedding of blood is a demonstration of the loss of life and the curse of sin. And so they would go into this temple not because they were worthy, but because they were unworthy in the sacrifice of an animal who was to be demonstrated as a substitute on their behalf because of their sin. And as the, blow, as, the, as the blood would flow from this animal, it was a demonstration that the curse of sin was still there and someone needed to make a payment for that sin. When they would walk into the temple for the sacrifice, Jewish tradition tells us that they would place their hands on the head of the animal and they would confess their sins recognizing their violation against holy God. We've talked about this together but when we talk about what makes sin, sin it's not the consequence though sin has consequence. What makes sin, sin is that it ultimately begins against God as a violation to his character in his nature. And they would go into this temple recognizing their sin and they would place their hands upon the head of this animal and confess their sins. Isaiah chapter 53 as it was written in scripture that identifies the ultimate sacrifice that was to come and look what it says. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us have turned our own way and look. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. And this passage would have blown away the Hebrew mind because they understood what this phrase means to lay on him. They were doing that. To go into the temple, to place their hands on an animal, to confess their sins. They knew exactly what God was saying in this passage of Scripture. That a Messiah would come and and laid on him would be the iniquity of us all. In fact, the very next verse in verse 7 says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. In reference to this Messiah. Which is no doubt the reason why when Jesus appears in John chapter 1, that John himself declares Jesus this way. John the Baptist on the Jordan River seeing Jesus. This is what he said. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lord has laid on him sins of us all. The sacrifices that took place in the temple were God's hands-on demonstration of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. That now as John declares in this passage, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus himself, he, he, he did not shy away of continuing to identify himself as that temple. In fact, Jesus continued to go to the temple and as ceremonies took place, he would direct everything taking place here back to himself as the ultimate one who was the sacrifice. The temple was the ultimate demonstration of what Jesus would do in his life. In fact, in, in, in John chapter 8, as a, as a lighting ceremony took place at the temple, they would light torches in the temple and, and place it along the outside of the temple as a demonstration to the world that this was God's light to the world. And Jesus says in the middle of this ceremony in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In, in John chapter 7, just before that, in the ceremony that ended with the pouring out of water as a sacrifice to God, Jesus stands in the ceremony and says, I am the living water. In John chapter 14, knowing that the Jews refer to their three entrances in the temple by three different names, they refer to it as the way and the truth and the life into the Holy of Holies. Jesus stood and he said in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. In John chapter 2, Jesus answered and said this, Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. This statement is made in all four Gospels. The Jews in Jesus' statement were confused by what Christ was saying. They literally thought that if this, this physical temple was destroyed, that Jesus would physically rebuild the physical structure of the temple. But what Jesus was ultimately demonstrating was that he himself was the ultimate temple in which the physical temple was foreshadowing. The temple was God's great classroom. 
But do you know, as you look at the structure of the ceremonies that took place in the temple, it also served as a reminder that we experience separation between us and our God. Because it was the priest who had to carry out the duties. And out of the priest, it was only those from the, from the family of Aaron that were able to conduct the temple ceremonies. Just a small percentage of Israel's population represented those that could conduct what took place within the temple. And even when you consider that the priests were the only ones to allow to conduct the ceremony between God and the people, when you looked at the structure of the temple itself, the temple was only two rooms. The holy place and the holy of holies. The holy of holies, which was the most sacred room, was the room in which God's presence dwelt. That room was separated even from the priests by a veil. And that room was only able to be entered once a year by a high priest who had to follow a very structured system of cleansing before he could even walk behind that veil. It's like saying to us this morning, everyone gathered to worship, we have to stand in the parking lot. They built this entire structure to identify the, the, this place for which people could come and connect to God. But yet, even still in the midst of that, they still saw this distinct separation between them and God. Because his presence was separated from them. Matthew 27 and verse 51 Jesus recognizing his statement that he would destroy the temple and in three days he would raise it up again. It tells us as he's being crucified, as he, as he gives up his life, the veil is torn from top to bottom, signifying to the world that the distinction of the separation between us and God has now been torn in two because of the sacrifice in which Jesus has made. Which brings me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, chapter 10, I think do a glorious job in painting this broad picture of all of scriptural context for us. I think this is a place that beautifully ties together what happens in Genesis chapter 3 all the way into the New Testament. In fact, if you carry this idea of what Jesus has done as the ultimate sacrifice and replacing the sacrificial system of Israel... The book of Hebrews just magnifies its beauty to you. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, listen to what the author says, who himself was a Jew. It says, for the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So it's saying the law and comparing the law to that system which took place within the temple. It's saying to us, it's merely a shadow. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year, for it is impossible for the blood and bulls and goats to take away their sins. What he's saying is the temple is God's great classroom. And the recognition that, that there was no animal that ultimately could be the sacrifice to take their sins away because they had to continually do it. 
And so the whole system in which God brought forth in this temple was merely a shadow, merely a teaching tool of what ultimately would take place. And so if you read on to Hebrews, down in the verse 14, this is what it says. For by one offering, he, referring to a person, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the new covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. What's happening here is really important. In the quote, you notice that the, the, the context of this passage, starting in verse 16, it's a different font because it's a quote from the Old Testament. So let me just explain. Verse 14 says this, that when Jesus grabs a hold of your life and you grab a hold of the sufficiency of his sacrifice on your behalf, you belong to him forever. You are adopted in his kingdom. Jesus has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. This idea of perfection deals with past, present, and future, all of your sins. This is where we get the security of the saints, uh, our, our our blessedness in God in the sense that when Jesus sacrificed himself for you on your behalf as you placed your faith in him, Jesus died not just for all of your sins up to that moment you professed in Christ. Jesus also died for every future sin they would ever conduct. Past, present, and future. Secure in Christ. And then the writer goes to Jeremiah The writer does this in Hebrews chapter 8 and in Hebrews chapter 10. He quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 in Hebrews 8. He quotes 34 in this passage of Scripture. Jeremiah 31, 31, if you ever study this in Scripture, it's the reason why our Bible is called the Old and New Testament today. It's why we distinguish this. Because Jeremiah 31 gives us the promise that a new covenant would be made. The old covenant that God made with Moses, the one with the law, was a covenant of death. It was a reminder of death that began for us all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. We looked at the fact that the law for us demonstrates that we are cursed. It's not a way of salvation. It's a way of condemnation. It represents to us a need for salvation. A need for a new covenant. One who would give his life. And that covenant does not come until the shedding of blood. That's how a covenant is established. That's how God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. God, in saying to Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed, he has Abraham sacrifice an animal. He causes Abraham to fall asleep, and then God walks through this animal, establishing this covenant. The word covenant in the Bible literally means cutting a covenant because they would kill an animal, separate it, and walk in between it to say, may what happened to this animal happen to me if I break this covenant. And through the shedding of blood, a new covenant is brought forth. Under the old covenant, animal after animal is sacrificed, demonstrating the curse of the law. Under the new covenant, there is life. And the Hebrew author is quoting Jeremiah 31 to say, the new covenant for us has come, and Jesus has ultimately fulfilled it. Therefore, in verse 19, so this concluding statement, this therefore, now now wrap your mind around this. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
Now think about this for just a moment. The priest, when he would go to the temple, he himself was separated from the very holy place where God's presence was found. This temple of two rooms, even though there were priests designated to demonstrate the people before God, they themselves couldn't come before the very presence of God. And so he says, therefore, think about this, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us, look, through the veil, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It was a demonstration to us. The temple was a demonstration to us of ultimately what Jesus would do. The perfecter of our faith. He himself destroying the temple, tearing the veil, And in three days, rebuilding it. Giving us now the opportunity to access behind the veil through the sacrifice which Jesus has made by by becoming our high priest. It's why the New Testament says in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 6.19, you now are the temple of God. That God now dwells within you. Remember the promise of uh, of Jeremiah 31, what he says in verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws, look, in their hearts and on their minds. God's presence now, rather than this external practice or demonstration, God's presence now is within his people. This is why in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 6, 19, it says, you are the temple of God. Now think about this for just a moment. When God made the sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, he very clearly said to us, he did not just clothe Adam. He also clothed Eve with those same priestly garments. When it talks about coming before the presence of God, It's not this patriarchal thought that separates, distinguishes between men and women. In fact, 1 Peter, talking about both men and women, says this. You also, as living stones, Peter's taking this picture of the temple that was built. He's calling you living stones now. He says, as living stones, you are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The spirit of God is not gender biased. Doesn't matter what gender you say you belong to, the same promise is given to both of us that just as God clothed Adam and Eve, that separation that took place in the Old Testament, though they could draw near to God by the priest, they're still separated from God, has now been brought near because of the blood of Jesus, and now all of us have direct access to God. Let me tell you this 
There is nothing more special than the prayer I make before God as a pastor than the prayer you make before God because of what Jesus has done for you. And can I tell you, one of the most sacred, intimate things you have available for you today is to become before Almighty God in the intimacy that's described in 1 Peter. Now, if you're asking to yourself, well, how do you really know it's talking to both men and women here? If you turn to the very next chapter in chapter 3 and verse 7 of 1 Peter, it's, Peter's telling to the husbands, husbands, uh, love your wives because they are joint heirs in the kingdom of God. Guys, I think sometimes in our lives we downplay the significance of what Jesus has done in in our very practice by this. Making little of the opportunity we have to come before a God who has paid so much for us to access him. I think when you really understand what Jesus has done, you can't help become, but become a person of prayer. A person who can't wait to access the God of all glory who has humbled himself to the point of becoming a sacrifice for us that we may continue in that relationship with him because of the new covenant. To understand is that separation was there that God has now brought us near in this new covenant and we have direct access before the King of kings and Lord of lords that we we can communicate with him and and talk with him and share our burdens with him and, and glory in his presence. I told you this last week, but one of the things that's important in all of Scripture to understand is how we we see the intimacy of what God has done through the sacrifice of Jesus, starting in Genesis chapter 3, is to understand the picture of how God has redeemed us throughout all of Scripture, and all of Scripture is about the redemption of Jesus and what he would bring for us. The New Testament looks back to Christ, the Old Testament looks forward to Christ, but the whole picture of that is, is the redemption of mankind as God has pursued us through the sacrifice of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself taught that. If you were to read in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection has taken place, but the people don't really know it yet. Jesus is resurrected from the grave. And you're reading a story in Luke chapter 24 about the strangers on the road to Emmaus. Two people walking on this road, dialoguing together. It tells us a third person enters into the conversation. It's Jesus, but the people don't realize it. And they begin dialoguing about what happened. And this Jesus says to them, what are you guys talking about? And, the, and they say to Jesus in Luke 24, how do you not know? I mean, are you from planet Earth? I mean, anyone that's in Jerusalem knows what's happened here. And they begin to share how this one came who they thought was going to lead them, lead Israel in redemption. And he was crucified and killed. And now they don't know what to do and how this took place. And then Jesus' response to them is this. And he said to them, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. 
This story of Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is saying, continues itself throughout all of the Bible. The whole point of the Bible isn't the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was just God's tool to remind us that death was on us. But God in Genesis 3.21 reminds us that life is in him through his redemption. The whole point wasn't to get us to lock into religious system. The whole point was to connect us to Jesus and to see how the whole scriptures paint this picture to him. Guys, Genesis chapter 1 to 3. And this is what we've learned together. If someone were to come to you or you proposition someone this question, why, why do you exist? I can tell you in a religious world, this is the stand they're going to take. Well, to do the best I can and to live out the Ten Commandments and then God will be happy with me. That's, it's this idea of performance and my value is placed on performance and my worth is there. And you could say, no, no, no. Let me just tell you how God starts this story in the first three chapters of Genesis. Glorious, holy, beautiful Yahweh creates. God who is transcendent above us, he speaks and he speaks purposefully into this world. He creates in seven days, he says, and he speaks. When he speaks, life begins. God, by the word of his mouth, begins life. And then when he creates mankind, he stops and he creates us intimately. He forms us out of the the dust of the ground. He breathes into us the breath of life. And he says he creates us in his image. God created us to connect to him as creatures for worship. And in this passage, we find that man, man turns from God. We had this relationship with him, but man turns from God, and God kicks us out of the garden to distinguish our separation from creator. But look at this. While we were creating religion, while we're blaming others, God pursues us for relationship. And God gives his life for you you may enjoy intimacy with him forever. The most sacred thing that we can experience is that relationship with God. My encouragement to us this morning, don't take it lightly, but enjoy his presence. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.